1 Corinthians chapter 15, starting at verse 20. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. But each in turn, Christ the first fruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him. Then the end will come when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father, after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Thanks be to God indeed. If you were here last Sunday, you know that we looked at the coming of Christ to Jerusalem, the triumphant entrance where Christ is proclaimed as king. And if you were here last week, you'll remember we said the problem wasn't that they had too greater expectation of who Jesus was. They had too small an expectation of who Jesus was. That was last Sunday. Five days followed after Jesus' triumphant entrance and he was crucified as a common criminal as a revolutionary on a cross, a failed revolutionary. The disciples gave up, went fishing. The women, perhaps more emotionally connected to what was going on, went back and prepared uh, herbs and spices and and the the appropriate uh, dressing for him to be buried in. For them, the resurrection was a great surprise. The king returned. The resurrected Christ returned. For us, 2,000 years later, perhaps it's not quite such a surprise. In fact, we come into the church every Easter Sunday and we say, he is risen, he is risen indeed. And why we say it? Why do we say that? Why are we so enthusiastic about saying, he is risen, he is risen indeed? So what? What is the big deal that Christ rose from the dead? Why should we care? What difference does it make to us? How does that change our daily life? Now, the letter to Corinthians that we read this passage from is a letter that was written as a corrective. Corinthians, the Corinthian church was out of control. They were misbehaving. They were actually one of the wealthiest churches in all of the empire. It was the center, one of the main centers of commerce and trade. They were very gifted and connected church. Uh, They were uh, perhaps one of the most successful in terms of the way they integrated into the community. Corinth was one of the churches that you would have thought of that would, would have and should have done the best, had the most resource, both in terms of human and material capital. Yet things were out of control in Corinth. Paul spent 18 months planning the church there, and after he left, he wrote this letter addressing all the things that were going on. And, and we read from chapter four, uh, 15, but chapters 1 through 14 basically list out and explain, no, you don't do this, you do this, you don't do this, you do this. There were problems with following authority. There were divisions amongst people. There was sexual immorality going on. There were arguments between believers that led to lawsuits. There was problems with marriage, uh, issues with sex in marriage and problems with 
separation and divorce. There were worship wars going on and there was the abuse of spiritual gifts. People building their own kingdom with them and thinking that they were something special because they had gifts. In fact, the church in Corinth sounds very much like the church in North America today. And after spending all this time working through these issues and explaining how God views and sees these things, Paul then turns in chapter 15, which is effectively the last piece of the letter in terms of his writings. There's a salutation and a few other things in the last chapter, chapter 16, but this is the last part of the letter. And he finishes chapter 15 saying, okay, you've got the head knowledge. You know where God's head is in this, but you need to get something deep in your heart. You need to have gospel heart transformation. And in verse 1 of chapter 15, he says, Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, on which you have taken a stand. He's saying to them, okay, you know what? You know where God stands on this stuff. I've laid it out for you in case you had any doubt, but you need transformation in your heart. You need gospel change in your heart. And he then goes on to lay out the gospel. And part of that is the piece that we read, the piece which highlights so much the resurrection. They didn't get the significance of the resurrected Christ. And Paul needed them to understand that so they could take the head knowledge of who, God's, who God was and who God's character is and what God's expectations were and have a heart that wanted to respond to that. And this is Paul's argument verses 20 through to, to 26, the section we ran. Uh, he begins by saying, Christ has been raised from the dead. His resurrection is the first fruit of the resurrection. And when he says raised from the dead, it's not like Lazarus. When Lazarus, just a couple of weeks earlier, was raised from the dead, you can imagine he was probably pretty excited to be back with his family. But then a week later, he was probably complaining about his sore back. He was probably arguing about, you know, how much money he should pay the tax collector. He was probably fighting with his sisters again. Life returned to normal for Lazarus. Now, sure, it was good, and it was a miracle that he was resurrected, but he was raised back into a mortal body. Christ here is the first fruits of the resurrection in the fact that his physical body is restored uh, as it will be for all of us in the coming kingdoms. That word first fruit is a term that comes out of the Old Testament which refers to the first portion. This is the first portion. Christ's resurrection is the first portion of the resurrection of all of us. It goes on in verses 21 to 22 to explain how things worked out that we even needed to be resurrection, resurrected. It talks about we die because of our connection to Adam, the, and the, fir, the first Adam, to, to Adam in the garden. And the point there is not that we inherit responsibility for his sin, but we have the same sinful disposition that he has. Just as he failed in the garden, we too would have failed in the garden if we were there. And we fail in rebellion, in rejection of God, day after day after day. So our connection is a dispositional connection to Adam. And it goes on to say, but we will be resurrected because of our connection to Christ. And that is again a dispositional correction, uh, connection. In the same way as we are sinful by disposition, like Adam was, we will become 
in our resurrected bodies, no longer sinful by disposition. Because we are connected not to Adam, but to Christ, to the second Adam. And he goes on to say that that, in verses 23 to 24, that that has an order associated with it. Christ is resurrected now. Then there will be the second coming. Then there will be us. And at that time, there will be a destruction of dominion, authority, and power. And of course, that is not good, good use of power and good use of authority and good use of dominion. What that's basically saying is anyone who stands up against God, who stands as a competing power authority to Christ, anyone who says, I want to build my kingdom and not the kingdom of God, anyone who uses power for their own glorification rather than to glorify God, that's what would be destroyed. And he goes on to say that in this period now, we have the establishment of the reign of Christ, and eventually we will have the final destruction of death. And the key idea here is that Christ's resurrection means that he is reigning now and establishing his kingdom now, but in the now, we are still subject to death. Death is defeated, but death is not destroyed. So we wait for the fullness of the coming of the kingdom, but the kingdom has come now in part, and we experience that. And this has profound, profound implications for us. First of all, we can hold our brokenness. We can experience brokenness and faithfulness together. We sit in brokenness, and we have to be aware of that. We don't have to deny the brokenness around us and within us, but that doesn't preclude us from having a faithful action, a faithful response to that brokenness. Brokenness and faithfulness effectively coexist within us and within the world. So what does that mean? That means we, say, we can say both. This is not the way it's supposed to be. We can look at the things which are wrong and not right and we say, this is not the way it's supposed to be. And we can respond not by building up our own kingdom, but say, what is the values of the kingdom of God? And how do I apply that to this context? So we live in the values of the coming kingdom of God and the present kingdom of God, even in the midst of brokenness. So in other words, the ends don't justify the means, but in this case, the ends, the coming of the kingdom of God, define the means. So we say, this is not the way it's supposed to be, but I respond in faithfulness because the end defines the means. If you don't believe in the resurrection, there are two responses to profound brokenness. Both of them are types of dysfunctional acts of self-worship, and they are denial and despair. If there is no way of managing the brokenness, if our small little kingdom, our little piece of power, if the resources that we have can't overcome, then we are left to either deny and pretend that it's not as bad as we think, or we sink into despair. There is no hope. And both of those things are effectively dysfunctional patterns of self-worship. We're saying, my story is too small, so I have two options. I deny or I despair. And the great thing about the reality of the resurrection of Christ is it brings realism 
Christianity is one of the most real, truthful religions that, they, that there is. It is a, a, a true expression of the reality. Christian realism says, when things are not the way they're supposed to be, I can lean into it. I can mourn. I can call that out. It is not the way it's supposed to be. And so I mourn. It is not the way it's supposed to be. So I can lament. It is not the way it's supposed to be. So in certain hope, I can, in my need and in my dependence, I can cry out in prayer to God. In effect, when we run into brokenness, it drives us to cry out, come Lord Jesus, come. Fulfill that first fruit promise of resurrection with the full resurrection of your people. And the picture of this is really expressed in Revelations 21, 3, 4. Listen, we've heard this before, but it's so important to wrap your head around the fullness of the resurrection that's promised in the first fruit of Christ's uh, uh, resurrection. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is amongst his people and he will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the order, old order of things has passed away. And I think it's worth asking the question because I think all of us have a disposition we either move towards despair or denial. I think it's worth asking the question for yourself, which way do you go? Do you move towards denial when things get out of control? Do you move towards despair when things get out of control, when your small world, your small story is not able to manage the chaos that you encounter? Or do you move to mourning, lament, prayer, to, to needy, dependent prayer? Which way do you go? I'm going to give uh, some examples. I'm going to unpack this practically. We'll start with the one that Paul uses, his, the physical body itself, which ends up dying. Now, many of you are young in this congregation, and the idea of understanding the aches and the pains, uh, having heard a doctor say, sorry, this is something you're just going to have to live with, or perhaps this is something you're going to die with, is not something that you're familiar with. But those of us that get older, that feel the creaky bones, the injuries from sports, we feel the limitations on the things that we can and can't do. Those of us who've experienced illness, which have, where we've been told that there, there's no coming back, those of us who uh, are becoming tired understand what it means to look forward to that new resurrected body, the one which doesn't get exhausted and the one that doesn't get tired. So we're all subject to death. There is no escape from that yet. Death has been defeated, but not destroyed. But we're also part of the kingdom, and that changes the way we respond to it. Ernst Becker, in his very famous Pulitzer winning prize book, The Denial of Death, actually makes the case that the modern world is actually an expression of an attempt to, all progress in fact, is an expression of an attempt to deny death that we build monuments to ourselves, that we put dying people into places that we don't see dead bodies anymore, that we have constructed a reality which builds monuments to ourselves and oppresses and moves death out of the picture. 
But I can actually say that that's not the experience that I have with the older people in our church. I don't see them either denying death, trying to build monuments to themselves. I don't see them running away or fearful of death. I don't see them in despair that turns to bitterness. The older people, and I don't want to use the term old, but the older people in our church seem to me to find joy in service, to find delight in faithfulness rather than despair that leads to bitterness or denying that leads to monument building. And it's really interesting to me the freedom that I see our older people walking with, a delight in prayer, a delight in service, a response to an invitation to serve. And Patty and I are lucky enough to spend time with some of the older people in our church, building cabinets, going for walks. And we are blessed not by deep, rich, thoughtful, insightful, theological conversation. We are, death, we are blessed by the presence of faithfulness in our life, by people who live out heart worship in our presence. And that is the ultimate blessing that you can give someone. So I am grateful. I am grateful for the older people in our church who are so committed not to monument building, but to faithful living, not to bitterness that come from despair and fear of death, but to service. And that's one example that we can actually look around our church and see a positive response to the resurrection. No despair, no, no denial, but there are others which I think all of us struggle with and find hard. Parenting. Many of us who are parents, when, we, when our children turn two, we've, we sort of flip between they're going to be president of the United States, they're going to be in jail for the rest of their life. Because, and, and that struggle, that tension that we see in our children is funny at two. But as they grow older, sometimes our children do go off the rails. Sometimes children that we have end up in prison, or perhaps children we have uh, get permanently injured or die. There's real pain as parents watch their children not fulfill the potential that they had. And there's a couple of ways we can go with that. We can, if we're estranged or if, if there are problems, drug problems or problems with behavior, we may just want to deny it. We may want to shrug we may want to look the other way. People who are perhaps not as connected uh, to being honest and true or maybe are walking away from the faith, all of the things that can cause us distress as parents, what do we do with that? Do we deny? Do we pretend it's not a problem? Do we turn to despair? Do we get anxious and spiral out of control? Or does Christian realism allow us to move to prayer, to certain needy, dependent prayer? Can we move to mourning? Can we lament? Or do we get trapped in the hopelessness of denial or despair? Are our stories too small? Or can we see them through the lens of the resurrection? If you're a child and you go to school and you experience bullying, bullying or even if you really want and have an aspiration to do well, but you don't have access, or you're not smart enough even to do it, or if you have dreams and you're not getting the results you want, or for whatever the reason, it's hard 
and you feel like things aren't going the way they should go, what do you do as a child in that context? Do you just deny that maybe you have a learning disability or that there's a friend group problem? Or do you just deny that and pretend that everything's okay? Do you suppress that and try to move on? Or do you come despairing and hopeless? Do you get stuck? Do you, get, do you find yourself caught up in dysfunctional acts of self-worship? Or can you hold the two tensions together? Can you look at that and say, this is not the way it's supposed to be, but I can live in the context of the coming kingdom? I can work through this. I don't have to fall into denial or despair. I can turn to Christ in prayer. I can live in my brokenness and my faithfulness. That's, of course, true for those of us who have jobs that are unfulfilling. We know that we're capable of doing so much more, and yet we find ourselves caught up in menial things. Perhaps we don't get paid enough. Perhaps we're struggling to get enough to feed family or to feed self. Perhaps things are not that easy. And we know that we're capable of more and we want more. And what do we do in those contexts? Do we find ourselves able to cry out, this is not the way it's supposed to be, and to mourn, to lament, to prayer? Or do we get stuck in denial? Do we, do we, we say things aren't as bad as we think they are? Or do we get stuck in despair? Are we able to move out of the dysfunctional acts of self-worship and see the big story? Are we able to find certain hope in the resurrection? Those of us, those of you, who are on the wrong end of the justice equation, whether it be racial or economic or gender or class, what do you do in that despair? Do you get caught up in anger and resentment and bitterness? Those of you who are on the right side of it, what do you do? Is it easier just to deny it, to say the problem isn't as big as it seems, that there isn't really a big racial or economic or gender or class or just injustice in general problem. How do we deal with those things? Do we turn to denial or despair? Because the reality is those things will not be fixed in this world. And yet, as Christians, we need to be faithful in addressing them. And even if you're on the right side of it and you care about the issues, how do you address those who seem to be denying. Do you turn to despair because you don't think people are taking it seriously enough? Denial and despair, as opposed to Christian realism, which allows us to turn to mourning and lament and needy dependent prayer, to get to the place where we call out, come Lord Jesus, come. Yes, things are not the way they're supposed to be, but we can function with the values of the coming kingdom, the come kingdom of God. I want to conclude by making these points again. The resurrection has enormous consequences for us. We can hold the experience of brokenness and faithfulness together. It is not the way it's supposed to be, but we don't have to react to that by trying to control it in things and ways which are beyond our capacity. We can be faithful in our response. We can use the values of the kingdom of God and apply them to the brokenness, knowing that we may not be able to fix them, but we can live faithfully in the context. We don't have to turn to denial or despair, to dysfunctional acts of self-worship. We are not caught 
in the small story of our ability to overcome. We are caught up in the big story of Christian realism that allows us in the midst of brokenness, in the midst of despair, in the midst of death, in the midst of unsatisfying work, in the midst of children who seem to be going off the rails, in the midst of racial or economic or gender or class uh, injustice, in the midst of our decaying bodies that don't despair but rest in certain hope, turn to mourning, lament and prayer, which leads us to call out, Lord Jesus, come. Come, Lord Jesus, come. He is coming. He is king. His kingdom is coming. His kingdom has come. This is what we mean when we greet each other with he is risen, he is risen indeed. He is risen. Let's pray. Lord God and Heavenly Father, Lord Jesus, Lord Jesus, we look forward to the time that all your authority is recognized on earth. We look forward to your coming kingdom. And we are so grateful for the certain hope of the first fruits of the resurrection. Lord God, we need you because we don't have big enough stories to overcome the brokenness of this world. And we are left with no choice but to turn to denial or to despair unless we connect in with the big story of your resurrection, the certain hope that we will inherit your disposition and you will overcome all of the powers and dominions that stand against you. Father, we need you. Help us to live in Christian realism. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.